the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. So glad you're with us here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, Stations you need to stay tuned to all day long. You'll be better for it. Um, Once again, uh, Jeff Sennis is here with us. He's engineering. Andrew Herdliska produces the show. And I want to welcome Sam Black to Orlando. He's in Michigan and uh, Director of Recovery Education for Covenant Eyes. Sam, welcome to Orlando. I'm uh, very happy to catch up with you. Pat, what an honor to be here with you this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, Tell me about your new book, The Healing Church. Yeah, the full title is The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. I wrote this book aimed it toward pastors and ministry leaders, because so often in the church, this is one of those topics that aren't discussed well, if at all. And so I really want to equip and arm pastors and ministry leaders and those under their care so that they could really bring a, a hidden and secret pain within the church, one that's impacting every ministry, that's undermining every ministry in the church and really equip the church to deal with this issue well. You open your book with a chapter called Opportunity from Brokenness. What does that mean? (laughs) You know, so often when God does something miraculous in someone's life, they can't help but share it, right? That is just, that is the nature of, of God's redeeming power in our life. And what I have found over and over and over again, when that someone goes through a, through a safe place and a safe process in the church and is discipled about something that's so shameful and um, painful at marriage and in so many other ways uh, to that individual, that when they go through that process, they not only leave behind the sin that was so affecting, the sin that was so uh, damaging in their life, but they, uh, the, all the corners light up in their life. The, and they get to learn to live in fullness that Christ has for us. And so it impacts their marriage, it impacts their volunteerism, it impacts their uh, abilities as a father or 
mother. It impacts so much of their life and within the church. And so when people, there is a, a common uh, thing within those who have gone through a recovery process of, of many things, but you keep what you give away. And when people go through a, through a safe place and a safe process in the church to overcome something that's uh, been in, so impactful like pornography in their life, they want to give away that freedom. And so you, when you disciple people through this uh, difficulty, when they come out on the other side, they give back. And, and, and often we don't recognize the potential of that because we don't really understand the impact of pornography, how people get often get stuck in the first place, and how freedom can come through the church. How do guys get stuck? Well, it is not just guys. It is women, too. Really? Uh, that's an often a, a surprise to many in the church. About 30% of women in the church today say they have an ongoing struggle with pornography. Mm. About 70% of men. And we have to understand that this doesn't happen. We often think of an adult, that they are suddenly confronted maybe online or uh, on a billboard or something else with a sexual image, and they just need to make the right choice. They just need to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And so we often in the church have uh, simply said, hey, we want to warn you not to do that, not to go there. You need to stop that. God's not for that. Don't do that and not understand how people get stuck in the first place. For both men and women, this is a common, the prevailing uh, scenario. And number one is exposure at an early age. Exposure. It creates a foundational uh, belief system, which on what other beliefs are built on. Uh, also, our neurochemistry is very impactful, especially to an underdeveloped brain in a child. So the average age for kids to be exposed today to pornography is somewhere between the ages of 12, ages 8 and 12, depending on which study you're looking at. And that can be very impactful to that brain. Just You ask just about anyone, what was the first time that you were exposed to pornography? And they can not only say, they can likely tell you a story about what happened, it, but they can't tell you anything else about that day. Now, number two is the ongoing use, the repetition. Uh, people have often start viewing pornography at a young age, and then it has continued on for quite a while. And number three, the third impact of this, uh, and let me, let me go back to that second part, that repetition, because it, it actually builds neural pathways in the brain that begin creating it more and more. God designed our sexual self, and he designed it in the most beautiful way possible. Pornography is not sex. It's a hijacking of what God created, including our neurology and our brain. Number three is drama, trauma, especially early in life. And soon, with this repetition, that pornography becomes an escape. People begin fleeing their emotions or regulating their moods with pornography, and it goes on for a long period. Now, let me see if I can help you understand this. I was 10 years old when I was first exposed to pornography, 
And uh, I didn't even understand the mechanics of sex. And um, my brother, who was 10 years older than me, showed me a, and had shown me an image when I came out, saw him leaning against his car with a magazine. I know I'm dating myself with a magazine there a little bit. But his, when I saw that nudity, which, by the way, is tame compared to what kids are exposed to today. Today, kids are seeing violence and degrading acts, et cetera, and most of it's video. It was impactful so much that I could tell you a full story about that at 10 years old. But I didn't even understand the basic mechanics of sex, although it naturally created uh, a neurochemistry change in my mind that helped me remember that, that to this day. And I had a friend, and his dad had pornography that was just falling out of his closet, and you can picture it. It looked a little like a waterfall. And if you picture uh, a shelf at the top of this closet stacked with pornography, it was sort of falling off, and there was a pile of it on the floor, and I could take anything I wanted, and I did. And so that began training my brain and training my neurochemistry to crave it more and more. The third part of this, the cement that often glues this together, is that I also came from a violent home. Even though it was a Christian home, it was hypocritically violent in many ways. And, very, and so when I felt fear or frustration or anger, I could run to pornography as an escape. Now, I didn't even realize that I was treating that with escape, but uh, it would follow me from middle school to high school to college and into my marriage. And I'm probably among the most fortunate men you'll ever meet because my, uh, by this time I'd become an agnostic, but my wife had begun attending a small church here in Michigan. And she asked if I would join her for a marriage seminar that they were doing at the church. And this, uh, the people who were leading this were very practiced in creating a safe place. And they would close the door and they would say, this is a safe place. What is said here stays here. And within that classroom, I heard people talking honestly and raw about uh, the, uh, their marriages and, and uh, what they might say or how they might react to their spouse and all these other things that were going on. And within that environment, I also learned that pornography could be com compulsive and addictive. And that was a great relief to me because that meant evolution didn't make me this way, that God didn't make me this way, and I didn't have to stay this way. And Pat, with help and support from men like you in my local church and in my greater community, I learned to live in freedom from pornography and understanding how all these different factors began impacting my life. And then, of course, uh, over my 16 years after that, 16 years, I started working with Covenant Eyes. And over that, I had a great opportunity to really uh, study this issue well, and that's why I created this new book, The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. <clears throat> My guest <clears throat> is Sam Black. Sam Black is in Michigan. We're talking about his book, <clears throat> The Healing Church. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sam, we've got about a minute and a half before the break. Uh why do you call a chapter called the shame of the salacious and then you call killing shame? What, what, what's going on here? Shame is keeping people in hiding. They are too afraid to talk about something that's having such a detrimental impact on their spiritual lives, 
on their emotional lives, on their on their lives of their families, it's hidden. It is shoved down. It shame shame keeps them stuck. And people enter into a shame cycle with pornography, where they can behave well for a little while, and then when they are, need to regulate their emotions, when they they have hit at the right trigger, they act out with pornography again. Afterward, they feel great shame and uh, what I call self-hatred at my expense, shame, self-hatred at my expense. And so it feels very debilitating. And then they'll, well, I'm going to try hard on my own power. And this cycle just keeps going and going. My, <clears throat> my guest is Sam Black. Uh, we're talking about his book, The Healing Church. We have another segment with Sam. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It is AM 990, <clears throat> FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. You need to stay plugged into those stations all day long. More with Sam Black. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. Sam Black has <clears throat> written an important book, The Healing Church. He's the director of recovery education for Covenant Eyes, based in Michigan. Uh, Sam, explain this chapter, The Lies That Keep People Stuck. <laughs> you know, pornography is, Satan is a liar, and pornography builds lies into people's uh, belief system. And there is so much to go into with that, that they're, uh, how people feel about the opposite sex, what they think sex should be. I mean, pornography will tell you that that um, variety is the spice of life, that the more you experiment, the more you act outside of marriage, and the more you have the more partners, all of that seems to be rewarding, but literally every study, every secular study that's ever been done always shows that God's design for sex marriage is the most sexually satisfying. Isn't that amazing? But, Pat, let me, let me move us to uh, something I think is very important for us to understand when we begin talking about the issue of pornography, because we need to understand how it is impacting the church. Pornography is literally undermining every ministry within the local church, whether you're talking about children's ministry or teen ministry or men's ministry, marriage ministry, the volunteerism in your church. All of them are being impacted by pornography. We've already talked about how children are being exposed to pornography at such an early age, and their parents aren't and teaching and instructing them and helping them understand that. That's why I dedicated a chapter to helping churches really help equip uh, parents in the local church to equip their children for the day that they will be exposed to pornography. We host uh, men's and women's events and breakfasts and dinners, and we have marriage getaways, and we pour all this effort into it, not realizing that 70% of men in the church, 30% of women in the church, they have an ongoing struggle with pornography, and it is undermining their faith. 
uh, sociological studies on pornography use shows that there, when people are viewing pornography, when people do review pornography, they have reduced church attendance, diminished faith, increased religious doubts, and they are less likely to volunteer in the local church. So we're literally robbing the church of leaders in our church because we're not addressing pornography well. And yet only 7% of churches do anything to address the issue of pornography in their local congregation. I want you to talk to us about wrong answer, try again, and then when we have the right to say enough is enough. This is often a hard topic for many pastoral leaders. We have often assumed in church ministry leadership that pornography use is a symptom of a sexual relationship in marriage that is not uh, healthy. And so often when wives have come to their pastors and said, hey, we really need your help, or during marriage counseling when the issue of pornography has surfaced, there is often then that a, what I would almost say a good old boy's understanding of this, and that if she would just be more provocative, maybe dress up, do any number of things, uh, be more sexually available, then he wouldn't look at pornography. That's a lie. Mm. He has been watching pornography and possibly, in, and I'm, I'm talking about men here, but this happens for uh, the opposite way as well, where wives are, are, can be stuck. But in general, it's men, and we, uh, because many clergy are men, the vast, vast majority, we have often understood this from a male perspective. And we have all, uh, it is, of course, scientifically proven that indeed uh, men have a greater desire for sex on an ongoing basis than women. Not always, but overall. And we have allowed that to sort of pollute the idea that if the cure for pornography use is more sex. But the truth is, when he uses pornography the week he has sex and the week he doesn't have sex, he uses pornography when she says yes and when she says no. And so pornography has created the lies within his brain It has corrupted his neurology. It has corrupted his heart, mind, and spirit. And we need to address pornography on a mind, body, spirit direction as well. And so the wrong answer is to simply say, you know, let me give you a couple of stories that I heard from counselors from Focus on the Family and and others as I was doing this review. A woman recalled being uh, in her past speak talking with her pastor and helping and addressing uh, this issue of pornography in their marriage and and she and she really thought that he had listened he had paid attention he had asked uh, uh, leading questions and he said hey i'm gonna I'm gonna talk with him I'm gonna pray with him and I just appreciate you coming and sharing this with me but later that day 
the pastor's wife and the assistant pastor's wife showed up to her door with a box of lingerie. And her heart sunk because, oh my goodness, her pastor thought it was her fault that she was looking at pornography, that he was looking at pornography. And apparently now the pastor's wife do too. And does that mean the assistant, uh, I'm sorry, the assistant pastor's wife knew? And does that mean the assistant pastor knew? And who else knew in the church about what their family was struggling with? We have often tried to create simply as more sex is the answer to a man's struggle with pornography, and that is just not the case. It often looks like, it's sort of like um, telling an alcoholic that you'll just have more alcohol, that'll fix the problem. It doesn't work. I want you to, Sam, I want, excuse me, I want you to talk towards the end of the book about three important uh, chapters here. Guarding the next generation, culture eats strategy for lunch, and the sum of small steps. That's how you end the book. Uh, Can you summarize that for us? If we have spent a great portion, let's start with guarding the next generation. Good. Because if we've taken a good amount of time in the first part of the book talking about um, men and women and how they got trapped in pornography, how it's impacted those in ministry leadership, we are often talking about adults. But we need to keep in mind that the vast majority of those adults who are struggling, who have a stronghold of pornography use in their life, started at a young age. And if the church doesn't step up, and support and help parents understand how pornography is coming after their children, then we will simply be adding another generation to this deep and painful struggle. And so we need to begin guarding the next generation and teach them um, how pornography will someday come into their lives and how they can and address it. We, and, and, and I think this is so important that I'm willing to spend a little more time with it. The, um, we, I highly recommend a book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, and Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Junior. And, and the junior version is, is for kids between five and eight. And it's often very common uh, for this to become one of those, uh, read, it's a read-along book, and often kids like to read it. They want to, often become so a favorite book uh, at bedtime, but it helps them understand what good pictures are and what bad pictures are. Good pictures are those we take on vacation and fun and et cetera. And bad picture, and it also shows them, you know, a, a bathing suit uh, of kids uh, playing at the beach and there's a bathing suit. But bad pictures are ones where bathing suits aren't covered. And so it helps the child to learn to turn, run, and tell when uh, they see an, uh, uh, an image or video where the bathing suits aren't covered, right? We're talking child ability here. And I have seen this play out in for families. I had a, a, a mom come running to me and say, hey, Sam, I did exactly what you said. We've been using this book. We've been using the software we've been talking about and other, other tools. And my seven-year-old was just exposed to pornography. And you'll never guess what happened. 
he turned to the other seven-year-old who had shown it on his iPad. And he says, no, that's pornography. And he turned, ran, and told his mom and dad. Well, with just a, um, a little more investigation after the, parent, the other parents found out that their seven-year-old had tried to expose another child to pornography, they discovered that that child had exposed the kids from seven through 11 throughout their neighborhood to pornography. But the only child who said anything was the child who was trained. All the other children kept it their secret. They hid it for any number of reasons. And so I think it is imperative that the church step up and begin creating an atmosphere where, where they can equip their parents to train and their kids for the day they will be exposed. My guest so that, has been Sam Black. Uh, sorry, we've run out of time. Sam Black has written an important book, folks, The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. And we're always so pleased when you join us. Stay with us because we have another segment coming up right now and again many many thanks to our guest sam black for this important half hour we've spent with him we'll be right back more of the pat williams hour in just a moment am 990 and fm 101.5 the word you're listening to the pat williams power hour am 990 and fm 101.5 the word now here's pat sam black our guest in that first segment talking about his book, The Healing Church. Sam was in Michigan. Well, we go to Denver, Colorado. We found Jessie Cruikshank. There she is. Uh, she holds a master's from Harvard in mind, brain, and education. And uh, Ordinary Discipleship, the name of her book. <clears throat> Jessie, uh, welcome to Orlando. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing very well today. Jessie, there was only one thing, by the way, that kept me out of Harvard. What was that? High school. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I love that. I, I'm curious. Uh, what What did your years at Harvard mean to you? I'm impressed, by the way. Well, it was graduate work. I did my undergrad at the University of Wyoming, okay. and I, I went to graduate school at Harvard in the College of Ed when I was 30, and it was a surreal experience for this small-town Wyoming girl. How about that? Fascinating. Well, good for you. Tell me about your book. Yeah, I wrote a book um, written to the everyday follower of Jesus on how to be a disciple maker. So it talks about um, how to connect with people, the relational journey, and um, has a little bit of brain science in there and some adventure stories. I used to be an expedition leader and trained people to be expedition leaders. So there's there's some nerd science, some adventure and um, just looking to equip the everyday person to be a disciple maker for everyday people. You open with a chapter called <clears throat> Experience the Journey, Becoming a Hero Maker. Fill us in. Yeah, the, I have used the hero's journey as the pathway for disciple making for about 20 years. And the hero's journey is this pattern that are, that's in epic stories of all kinds of cultures all over the world. And now most movies and um, books and things follow the hero's journey. And so the beginning chapter is 
starting to outline what the hero's journey is and what does it mean to come alongside somebody not as the hero of the story, but as the hero maker, as a mentor, guide, coach, champion for the hero as they walk their own journey. Move to the second topic. An ordinary person, the journey of disciple-making. I want to hear about this. Yeah, I love that Jesus called ordinary people to make disciples. He didn't call call spiritual elite. He didn't call people who were highly educated in seminary, because seminary didn't exist then, but he just called normal people. And when we recognize that ordinary people are called into the adventure of disciple-making, we have to face the all the things that have been told to us on problems that, that may, we may face or reasons why we might feel disqualified. And a, a look a little bit in the Bible in that chapter of how God called other ordinary people to be disciple makers and what that looked like for them. So just kind of exploring, meeting us where we are, ordinary people, ordinary lives. And in the middle of that, we're called to this adventure of walking alongside somebody else as a disciple maker. Now I want you to move to uh, Answers the Call, joining the Cosmic Group Project. Tell us more. Yeah, the, the, the two cruxes in like, or two places where uh, ordinary person being a disciple maker may, may struggle. And the first one is in answering the call. Then a hero's journey, the you know, we each have this invitation to grow, to go somewhere we've never been, to do something we've never done. And we look at that and we're like, wait a minute, I don't think that that's for me. I think that's for someone else. But in order to answer the call, we have to, you know, we get a little brave, we get a little um, adrenaline going, and we say yes, we say yes to that adventure. And when we say yes, we learn that we're not alone. And that we get to not only join with um, the whole history of people who have followed God into hard and scary places, but also with everyone else who is currently saying yes to Jesus and following into hard and scary places. So it's not a, a solo hero journey, but we actually get to be connected and do it with one another. And that I think that's the surprising thing when people say yes to the adventure of it. What about... Uh teams with others, the community of tables, ropes, and campfires? Yeah, campfires. So I was an expedition leader, and being on expeditions was the this great time of, of hanging out and being connected with one another in order to do hard things. Um, and you really need each other, right? You, you've coached teams, whether you're, it's an expedition or a sports team, we get to be connected to one another on the journey. And that involves a level of commitment. And one of the ways to think about that commitment is that on an expedition team, you're roped, you're literally roped to one another. Whether you're climbing rocks or climbing a mountain with snow on it, um, you tie into one another. And to have a disciple-disciple-maker relationship, you need that level of commitment. Okay, we're, we're gonna tie into one another. What does that mean? How do we enjoy each other through the tables and the campfires? And, and how do we actually have a deep enough relationship 
in order to go through the challenges that are, are waiting up ahead. Because every adventure has some unknown challenges, and we need to be able to trust one another as we move forward into that. So we get to explore the, the, the scary and the exciting part of being connected in community with one another as we walk this journey of discipleship. Jesse Cruikshank is our guest. She's in Denver, author of Ordinary Discipleship, <clears throat> How God Wires Us for the Adventure of Transformation. Jesse, we've arrived at topic number five. It's called Learns New Things, The Way We Change. This is where we get to jump into some of that brain science. Um, that I find so fascinating. I, I love learning about the way that God created us to learn and to change. And when we learn new things, there are ways to do that that don't help us change. They're just kind of boring, and our brain forgets them very easily, like remembering all that stuff you had to memorize in school, you know, like the capitals of the states and um, capitals of countries and that sort of thing. And your brain forgets those really easily. It's, it's not very invested in keeping them. But then we have this other type of long-term memory where we remember our stories in our adventure. And it's called autobiographical memory. And when we learn new things in that memory system, our brain is very invested in keeping them. Our body is very invested in keeping them. And, in fact, when we start to forget our story, it's scary, right? We, we call that dimension. It terrifies us. Well, if we learn new things in that memory system, one of the fascinating things about autobiographical memory is that it's the only long-term memory system that projects into the future. So the way that we remember the past is the way that we think about the future. And so if we learn new things through experience, through adventure, through relationship, as part of our life story, our brain automatically applies those lessons to our future. If we just memorize things, it's the wrong memory system for doing that. It, it literally can't do that. So we want to learn new things in this autobiographical memory and do it in a way through parables and apprenticeship and life on life and all of the good and the bad and the scary and the exciting because that automatically changes our life. That's how God created us. And I just think that's amazing and wonderful. Now, <clears throat> I want you to talk about feeling the struggle, listening to the right voices. What's that mean? As we learn new things, we start to become aware of more, right? We start to become aware of um, what God wants from us and the things that he's wanting to, to challenge us and grow us in. And that starts to become uncomfortable. So we feel the struggle, right? As you're training for, whether it's a mountain or a sports camp, you're starting to push yourself and go where you've never gone and train yourself in a way you've never trained. And things start to break down for you, whether it's your muscles or your paradigm of the world, things start to, to struggle. And in the middle of that, we need to know whose voice are we listening to. So we want to learn how to hear God, hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, and hear the voices of wisdom around us. So in this chapter, I talk about how to hear God, how to test whether or not it's God that you're hearing and not something else, and how our personality, our different personalities, influence that. Not for, the, not for um, a negative, right? We don't have to become without a personality in order to hear God. 
but actually he speaks to us very carefully and very um, specifically in our personality type. And so then when we speak out of that and we share and then we embrace who God created us to be as ordinary people, we can connect to people who hear our voice well, and that helps us be a disciple maker because we're being our authentic self. And that'll resonate with some people, not everybody. And that's fine. You're not there to disciple everybody, just, you know, at least one other person. So in the middle of the struggle, what voices are we listening to and are they helpful or are they harmful? And how do we sort that out? <clears throat> Jesse Cruikshank is the founder of Whoology, an ordained Foursquare ministry and a nationally recognized leader in the fields of experiential education and educational neuroscience. Uh, can you translate that for us, Jesse? <laughs> right. So it's how the brain learns and changes. Um, and then how do you set up environments that help with that? Because there are environments that don't help us grow and change, and there are environments that do. So I try to help organizations and churches and businesses and nonprofits um, create those kinds of learning environments. Jesse Cruikshank, our guest. We can have another segment with Jesse. And when we come back, uh, we're going to discuss the seventh topic experiences revelation and becoming motivated by love. I'm Pat Williams. Uh, This is the Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend and always so happy when you join us here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Remember those call letters, folks. They're important. Uh, So, More with Jesse right after these messages. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Jesse Cruikshank joins us from Denver, Colorado, talking about her book, Ordinary Discipleship. And Jesse, as advertised, experiences revelation, becoming motivated by love. Fill us in. I think when I started training people how to be disciple makers, one of the big questions that they had and that I wrestled with answering was, why do we even be a disciple at all? Like, what does that mean? If we already have a conviction about who Jesus is and our relationship with God, what is what is it that we're doing now? What does the journey look like or what is the point of it? And what I have, the conviction that's developed in me over the last couple decades is the purpose of discipleship is ex, is to experience revelations from heaven, for, for heaven to teach us things that bring wonder and awe and humility and we learn more about God and we learn more about how God sees us and sees others. And as we, as heaven teaches us stuff, we have these aha moments, these things that click and change, and they make us different. We're never the same after we have these revelations. And the process of that, we know it's a revelation because it's helping us become more motivated by love. There are two types of motivation that the uh, Apostle Paul talks about in Scripture. And one is the motivation Um, to do the right thing in order to gain or avoid a consequence. And Paul calls that law motivation. 
So law motivation does the good thing, but it does it because it wants to gain a reward or avoid something negative. And unfortunately, as Paul talks about in multiple books of the Bible, very profoundly in Galatians, is that that kind of motivation brings death. It actually, we can't do it because as he, I mean, as he talks about in Romans, if the law could bring life and save us, then there would be no need for Christ and the cross. So instead, God wants to help us become love motivated, where we do the right thing, we do the good thing, regardless of what the consequences are. So where we're kind to people, regardless if they respect us back, where we love and we share and we give things away, regardless of if the person ever, you know, learns their lesson in order to do something better. Um, So it's just like Jesus died on the cross, whether we ever loved him back, you know, he still made that choice. So the, the big journey of discipleship is to help our heart become move from being law motivated, which is our default, um, default in all places of our life, moving from that into being love motivated, because uh, that's, that's what Jesus came to show us. And, and there's quite a bit of scripture around how God wants to help us do that. So as a disciple maker, that's what I'm helping happen in somebody else's life, where they can move from being law motivated to love motivated. And that takes these aha revelations of just understanding God better and, and how he opens our eyes uh, to, to who he is and who he's made us to be. It's, it's a fantastic journey and amazing moments that, that cause us to never be the same again. <clears throat> Topic number eight, Jesse, lives changed. Experience in the kingdom of God. I mean, so every good story has like a why, a purpose, a reward. But what is the point of going through the hard thing, right? Why didn't God just poof us to heaven when we made Jesus Lord of our life? Well, I think that that is because he wants us to experience the kingdom of God with one another and have that experience here because that becomes good news to the rest of the world. So in this chapter, explore different stories of, Um, amazing experiences with communities that have a very kingdom of God feel. And, and I define that, that it kind of feels like home, right? It feels like you've come home or been home or you're, you're just connected with people in this way that's comfortable and relaxing. And we look at the kingdom of God as, as the place where Jesus rules and reigns. What is Jesus king of? And just looking at our lives and saying, Oh, is, is, is Jesus king of that? Is Jesus in charge of that? Does Jesus get to define my relationships and how I think about finances and how I think about other people? Um, because that's the reward of going through the, the hard places and having revelation. We get to have more of God on this side of eternity, and we don't have to wait until we die for that. I think that's pretty amazing, and I think it's good news to other people that, that, that that's possible on this side of eternity. Now, I want you to talk about discerns the seasons, turning the page. So as a disciple maker, the other challenging part is to know when the season is is different, when the season is over. And for me, there are three ways that I think the disciple maker-disciple relationship ends. Either the person that you're discipling kind of gets mad, they get to that struggle place, 
and they get to the big, you know, the challenge and the thing that God wants to recreate in them, and they decide no, and they walk away. And so they can walk away from the person who's discipling them and that betrayal or rejection, and, and that hurts. And that's a struggle, and I'm kind of honest about some of my experiences in that. Or the person that you're discipling kind of gets to that hard part, and they just kind of spin. They, they, don't, they don't do much. They don't go forward. They don't go back. And you're waiting, and you're waiting for, for them to, to wake up or, or, or have these aha moments. And in that, um, what I coach people is that if Jesus told you, if God told you to be in that relationship, then God's the one who has to release you from it. And the way that we grow in those places as a disciple maker is to talk to the person who's discipling us and sort that out and talk through it. And man, just what does it mean to wait on God and hope and faith with somebody who's not moving as fast as you'd want them to. Well, that, that stretches and grows us, and that's good. But the third way is that they have the aha moment, they experience the revelation, and, and they're changed. And I think then you get to celebrate that. You know, it's like they graduate from high school or they graduate from that lesson. So we celebrate that. We have our rites of passage. And then we ask the question, what's next? You know, is, are we supposed to travel another chapter of the story together? Um, is there someone else that that person is supposed to go and, and walk alongside? And answering those questions of recognizing where we are in the journey and the story, what is the next thing that we're supposed to do? And then discerning, wow, okay, is, this, is, is my role in this story done as a disciple maker? Or do we become just more peers and friends? Or do we take another round? And, and walk another lap. Uh, it's, it's just part of the, the story because every story has an end and that's what makes them special. And not all relationships are for forever on the side of eternity. And that's what makes them precious. So we have to know how to say goodbye and when to do that. Jesse Cruikshank is our guest. Her book, Ordinary Discipleship. Jesse, uh, what do you want uh, people to take from this book and, and from this chat we've had? I think hopefully um, a budding belief that that Jesus called everybody who calls him Lord, everyone who follows him. Jesus has asked all of us to make disciples. And that is something that he helps us do just as we are with our strengths and our weaknesses and our personality and he believes the Holy Spirit can help us. He believes that those things that heaven has taught us are things that we can share. And we don't have to make it more complicated than it is. We don't have to make it harder than it is. We just have to say yes to that cosmic adventure and let God help us do the rest. Jesse, I want you to talk to us about our brains and the, these these incredible well, what is it? About a three and a half, three pound muscle, about the size of a cantaloupe. There it is in our brain, and I, I just can't believe all that the brain does. I know it's your thoughts. It's the most complex and fascinating thing in the universe. I mean, some people get excited about space, and I think space is interesting, but I think the brain is more fascinating because it's more complex and it's more intriguing. And, you know, God made it in a certain way. And so I spend a lot of time wandering around, you know, the things that, 
about our brain, the ways that our brain works and saying, is this good or is this bad? And if it's good, how is it good for us? You know, how is, how is it good for us that it's so hard for us to change our mind? How is it good for us that to change our mind, which, which scripture calls repentance, metanoia, it's like a literal miracle because your brain is not created to change its mind. It's not created to come to and to learn very well, right? Your brain is not interested in truth because if it was, then it would be easy for us to learn stuff and we would walk away from the cookies and (laughs) that would be so easy. But when I, when I look at the brain and how it's made and how it works, and then I look in scripture, you know, as to what God wants for us, I see that he cares about our identity. And that's why it's hard to change is because he wants to tell us, he wants to help tell us who we are and for us to be strong and secure in that no matter what happens in the world. So, you know, there, the things that are disadvantage uh, to us apart from God are highly advantageous to us when we're with God. The other thing I think that's fascinating about the brain is that it's highly connected with the rest of our body. Um, it's connected with our heart rate and our breathing rate and our organs and our adrenaline and our stress and all of that. And that helps it hear and learn and pay attention to the world. So we hear and receive, you know, interact with, with our life as a whole body. And all of that comes into the brain and the brain kind of interprets that and, and helps us understand what's happening. So I think of our, I think of us as a giant antenna for God to talk to, whether it's through your body, your soul, your spirit, your mind, your heart, your emotions, God is always trying to get through to us and communicate to us. And he made this huge mechanism called the brain to, to sort through that. And your brain, your brain makes up stuff all the time, which is why it's not interested in truth, right? Your brain wants, you, you walk through life and it makes up its mind about something and you have a specific paradigm and you can't see things outside of that. You literally don't even see they exist. And you have to have these re- revelations, these aha moments. You know, it's like the car that you didn't know existed. And then you do, and then you see it everywhere, right? I don't know. It's, it's crazy to me the way that God uh, has fearfully and wonderfully made us and how it's, they're good things when we're connected with God. They're, they're helpful things. But when we're not, they can they can sort of uh, get in the way. Jesse, <laughs> There's something to be overcome. Jesse Cruikshank has been our guest. Ordinary Discipleship, the name of her book. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're back next weekend for more right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word <clears throat> in Orlando. Have a wonderful week ahead. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.